Let me ask you this. Have you heard the name Rene Descartes before? I'm seeing some nods out there. He was the French philosopher from the 1600s, and even if you've never heard of him, I am quite certain you have heard his famous philosophical phrase, I think, therefore, I am. Yes, I hear some of you finishing it for me. In other words, if a person, a person can know that they actually exist if they have the ability to think. I think, therefore, I am. I exist. So that, that makes sense, at least in his way of thinking? Well, good, because here's a joke about that. Rene Descartes walks into a bar, and the bartender says, Hey, buddy, you going to have something to drink? And Descartes pauses for a minute and says, I don't think I am. And then he disappears. <laughs> All right, you got it. Good, good. <laughs> I think, therefore, I am, I exist. I don't think I am, therefore, I don't exist. So he vanishes. Well, it's a bad joke, and it has a dumb pun in it. And maybe I can't quite pull it off, but you know who I think actually could pull that joke off, or something of equal caliber, is the Apostle Paul. Because in our passage this morning, Paul opposes what he says are philosophies and empty deceits by taking a crack at them, even with wordplay. Paul tells us not to let these things take you captive. And then the, the Greek word he uses here for take captive is syllogagon, or uh, uh, syllogagon, maybe, is pronounced. And it sounds so similar to the word for synagogue, which is the Jewish place not only of worship, but where a lot of community leaders come together and philosophize and politicize about what's going on in their world. So we don't really have a good English translation for Paul's wordplay here, but I think maybe we might render it this way. Hey, Christians, don't let religious institutions institutionalize you. It's maybe what he's going for. See, Paul's doing something pretty gutsy and scandalous here. He's dismissing the religious institutions of his day, whether Gentile pagan temples or Jewish synagogues, as utterly worthless and empty in and of themselves. If, if these Christians don't practice true philosophy, all the little philosophies that they glom onto are ultimately meaningless. See, Paul is dismissing both pagan mysticism and Jewish moralism as ultimately equally no good. And here's the reality, church. We can live a totally debauched lifestyle, engaging and indulging in every lustful desire, just like the pagans, or we can live a completely strict and ascetic lifestyle, avoiding every pleasure like we see in these Judaizers that are enemies of Paul. And neither of those ways will lead us to heaven. Let me say that again, folks. You can be a drunk or a teetotaler. You can be a philanderer or you can be totally celibate. You can be a bleeding heart liberal or you can be a staunch conservative. And folks, listen to me, neither side will get you into God's good graces. Paul's whole plea for the Colossians and for us by extension is this. It's not what you do and it's not what you don't do. Instead, it is what Jesus has done on your behalf. That's the argument of Colossians. 
We are acceptable, not only acceptable, but delightful in God's sight because of who Jesus is and who we are in Him. So don't be fooled and captured, Christian. Don't be deceived. No popular worldview, no political party, no even common sense or decent morals justifies your life before an infinitely holy God. None of those things do. Only Jesus does that. So today we're going to have a Philosophy 101 course with Dr. Paul of Tarsus. And our professor is going to reveal the difference to us between worldly wisdom, a.k.a. philosophy, or philosophies, plural, and otherworldly wisdom, namely Jesus Christ in the flesh for us. Now this whole book, as a way of review, has been a celebration of the gospel as it plays out in the life of Colossae. See, these Christians have been faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Paul is thankful to God for that, how the Holy Spirit has been at work in them. And he even tells them he's willingly and gladly enduring the prison chains that he's enduring right now as long as it means that they'll continue to grow and flourish in Jesus. Nevertheless, spiritual danger lurks on every side. And so Paul has to remind them to look out. See, after reminding them that Jesus is their creator and redeemer, who's close to them even as they suffer, who... who, in a mysterious way, their suffering continues the good suffering that Jesus did for us while he was here on earth. He wants these Christians to keep their eyes peeled for these two different groups that might distract them from Jesus. The, the pagans and the hyper-religious Judaizers. So let's see what true wisdom that Paul has for the Colossians and again, by extension, us. Let's look at these verses together. In verse 4, Paul insists that we really know and internalize and, and, and bury the truth and the story of Jesus deep within us. So that no one, whether the pagans who taught that Jesus was just a nice guy or one of the many lower gods, or, or, or whether the Judaizers who taught that Jesus was only a gateway, he's only the opening act for kosher laws and, 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 and Sabbath keeping, so that none of those people can lead us astray from Jesus. No matter how plausible their arguments might seem at first glance. And there's a lot of arguments out in our world today that seem plausible to us. This is ultimately why Paul, who was imprisoned for these people, and suffering terribly in his body, is able to still be so thankful and joyful even and lifted up in his spirit because in verse 5 he rejoices that these Christians are doing well as a church, not because they're good or nice or smart or talented or whatever, but because they, like Paul, have found their ordering and their strength in Jesus Christ and him alone. That's why he's able to give thanks. Not that they're perfect people, not that their lives are together, that their families are in order, that they are the most theologically sound people, that they're the most morally uh, um, uh, uh, consistent people, but because despite all their failings in that regard, they put Jesus as their foundation in life. But friends, that's not where the faith stops, is it? I fear so often in, 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 in 
Baptist churches like ours, the goal is just to get people to have some sort of intellectual or theological agreement that Jesus is important. And that's the end of the Christian life. You make a one-time decision. You get splashed with some water and then you go out and do whatever you want because you've got your fire insurance. You've got your get-out-of-hell-free card. But that's not the real faith that Paul talks about here. Paul answers that question. Is, is faith only just uh, some decision you make or is it an active and, and daily walk with the Lord? He answers this in verse 6 and 7. Faith means that we continue, we continue throughout our lives to walk with Jesus. The Christian life is not over once we meet the Lord. That's only the beginning of our Christian life. Over the course of a lifetime, we grow in a knowledge and a relationship that works itself out in the world with our Lord. And as Paul shares in verse 7, our roots grow deeper and deeper the more we know Him. And we know Him through things like Scripture reading and prayer. And the church is built up as we follow Him through remembering, first of all, obeying and becoming baptized, and then remembering that baptism. By celebrating the Lord's Supper, as we'll do here this morning. We're established in our faith when we meet together to fellowship and worship, and and when we go out as the world to bear witness to who Jesus is and what He's done. In all these aspects of worship, we find that Jesus is walking with us the whole time. He's with us. He continues to sustain and nourish and go with But still, Paul has to warn. You can know who Jesus is. You can continue on your walk with Him, but still, don't be so easily deceived by philosophies or empty deceits or any human traditions in this world. Christians are not immune to this. You know, just this week, I read kind of a a very depressing report about how uh, MIT, their technology review, revealed that in 2019, it's two years ago, 19 of the top 20 Christian Facebook pages were run by known, provable scammers. 19 of the top 20, 75 million people were buying in to the lies and deceits and philosophies and propagandas of these troll farms that are run out of Eastern Europe. These these professional companies that work to spread false and provocative content to stir up animosity in the U.S. And you know who the biggest suckers of all were? Were American Christians. We say we care about what's true and what's right. And yet the largest demographic of easily deceived and gullible people were the people that should know better. I imagine the Apostle Paul would pull what remaining hair he had out of his head if he could see how silly and gullible we've become and churches in America today. It would embarrass him to no end to see how 
we willingly give ourselves over to these vain and empty deceits. We may not be able to say anything about what the Bible means, but somebody shared this article on Facebook, and I know this has to be true, because it confirms how I want reality to be. We've been so taken in by the ungodly worldviews of social media and cable news and both heathen political parties that we think, uh, are, are, we're so silly that think they actually care about the kingdom of God. Folks, we lack unbelievable amounts of wisdom in this country, especially Christians. And this is why Paul, in verse 8, warns Christians to be vigilant because even they can be suckered in by these so-called philosophies. Now we hear that word philosophy and we typically think probably about the hypothetical brainy, you know, freshman college course stuff that doesn't really matter, you know. But we think, you know, philosophy really doesn't have any worldly practicality, real world practicality to it. But the way that Paul is talking about philosophy is not just the abstract, you know, reading Aristotle when you're 19 years old. No, what he's talking about is he's talking about a general wisdom that governs how you live your life. That's a philosophy. In the Colossians' day, they might find a kind of wisdom for how they live their life, a kind of um, worldview from when they would read the, the great pagan philosophers like Aristotle or Plato. Or maybe they might find some religious philosophy or worldview when they would read Jewish rabbis like Caiaphas or Gamaliel. Both groups offered a way of thinking about life from the private interior life to the public, corporate, political life. Today, again, sometimes we might call this a worldview. It's just a way that it's a system through which we approach uh, life and its, its problems. And in a sense, there's tons of different things that can become philosophies that are so domineering and dominant in our life that they govern how we think. You can have a, um, a, a philosophy about the economy that governs the way you think. You can be a socialist or a capitalist. You can have a, 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 a philosophy about the society, being a, a conservative or a liberal. You can be a, a person that has a philosophy about art, like in classicalism or, or modernism. You can be a person that has a system of, of thinking about violence, so you can be a pacifist or a militarist. And you can even have philosophies about God, being a deist or an atheist. And the point Paul is making here is that philosophy or whatever ism there might be someone subscribes to can govern how they think and act and how they live. And folks, let's be honest, there are a lot of philosophies, there's a lot of isms in our world today that vie for our attention and total loyalty. Some of them may be helpful, but some of them are unbelievably destructive. Some may come from admirable human traditions, and, and, and some may come from evil spirits that lurk behind the scenes of reality, stirring us up to hating God and hating one another. Let me give you an example, I think, of both. Here's a little hypothetical. Let's do a case study. 
So we're a Baptist church. That means that the way we interpret the Bible, the way we govern ourselves as a congregation, the way we worship is informed by Baptist tradition and church history and theology. And some of those traditions are good. I think that's why we're all here, because we think there's something worthwhile. But even those good traditions can become empty deceits if we're not careful. So let me give you an example. You know, we live in a part of the country that typically gets a lot of rain, but there are parts of this country that go through severe droughts. We've seen terrible wildfires. So just imagine with me, it's a few years down the road, and we are in such a severe drought that we don't even have enough water to take a shower on a daily basis. What if the only water we were allocated during the day was enough water to drink to keep us going? And what if someone in our church were to come to faith and wanted to be baptized, but we didn't have enough water to fill up this baptismal pool behind us? Do you think that maybe, just maybe, that although we believe that uh, immersing someone beneath the waters is the clearest mode and, and proclamation of what God is doing through baptism, do you think heaven would still rejoice in that person coming to faith and following obediently through baptism if we could only pour a cup of water over their head? Now folks, I'm a Baptist, again, for a reason. In my heart of hearts, I sincerely believe the, the, the mode of immersive believers' baptism is the most faithfully biblical model of what baptism is all about. But far be it from us to say that our sovereign God would be hindered from doing His work by our limitations in this world. Do we think so little of His grace and mercy that we think the Lord couldn't move and work through less than ideal human circumstances? See, if friends, if we get so caught up on the fact that only our tradition and our mode of baptism saves us, and if it's not God who raises Jesus from the dead as He raises us from the dead, if we put our emphasis on a tradition more than we put our emphasis on Christ, we're already taken captive by something that's even a good tradition. So Paul says, don't be taken captive by things like this. Remember, Jesus says through, uh, he, he says to the Pharisees, who were trying their best to live biblically, Remember what God says. I require mercy, not tradition, not, a, not a, a, the following the sacrificial system to a T. I require mercy and grace. See, that's what ought to be our tradition as a church. We are people that are filled, that are overflowing, that are brimming with grace and mercy and forgiveness. We can let all these songs go. We can let this pulpit go. We can let that baptismal font go. We can let our traditions and holidays and feasts go if we're people that love Jesus and want to be gracious and merciful like Him. I love tradition. I love rich Christian traditions. There are things that I think we ought to do as a church. But it's not more important 
than faithfully following Jesus. Paul says, don't be taken captive by even good traditions. Even things that we think are good for our society. Don't let that thing become your God. How you view money, how you view politicians, how you view anything socially. Don't let that become your God. Let Jesus be your God. But Paul says also don't be taken captive by the elemental things of the world. Now this is kind of a complicated idea, and a lot of scholars argue over what this means. You know, elements can just mean the the kind of fundamental rules of nature. You know, don't be taken, uh, you know, captive by the way that nature, don't, don't be a person that says, well, you know, uh, in every wolf pack, there's an alpha dog, there's a, there's a leader, and he bosses everything else around, and so that's, how you sh- that's where you should get your philosophy from. Be a kind of person that, you know, is so intimidating and powerful that you boss everybody around. It's a dog-eat-dog world. So there's a sense in which maybe Paul is talking about that. But there's also a sense, and I, I think this is, is more true, not that he's just talking about the elemental, common, natural elements of the world, but I think he's delving much deeper beyond what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands and experience. I think Paul is talking about the elemental spirits of the world. In other words, the powers and principalities that exist behind the scenes that pull the strings in the lives of people, that, that, that buddy up to human systems of, of power and, and elevate people and, and give them a, a, a domineering, tyrannical attitude. I think Paul's talking about those things, the powers and principalities that have always existed in the background of human history. These evil beings that influence rulers and, and, and governments and commit atrocities or, and push individuals to act heinously towards one another. These elemental spirits that may whisper in our ears as a society or perhaps just as individuals, in ways we don't even realize until it's too late. There are all sorts of lying spirits in our day and age. It would tell us that unborn children aren't really people. They're just fetal tissue that can be disposed of without consequence if it's an inconvenience. Lying spirits, evil entities that try to convince us that someone from a different, that has a different skin color or accent or nationality is not an image bearer of God and we can treat them poorly. Lying and evil spirits that say that women aren't equal to men and exist only to serve the males of the species. These elemental spirits want us to believe that women and children and people of color are less worthy of love. That are less worthy of protection, that aren't really that aren't really human in the same way that we are. But listen here, Christian. These things, these spirits that tell us that there are certain people that are better because they have more money or more power or more fame or more talent, that may be the elemental spirits of this world speaking, but it's not the Holy Spirit of God who speaks. All people in this world. And I mean all people. Scandalously, I mean all people are created in the image of God. Not some of them, all of them. 
Even the really rotten ones. Even the ones that you can't stand. You know what G.K. Chesterton said? I just saw this recently. He said, you know, the Lord tells us to love our neighbors and he tells us to love our enemies because generally they're one and the same. Everybody in your life is an image bearer of Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. They reflect His glory even in all the distorted and broken and sin-warped ways that they may exist. Even in all the ways of the things they believe, the people they live with, the things they practice, how they vote, how they live, even in all that, they're still image bearers of God. During the early days of the church, the Roman Empire looked at children and disabled people, the poor, women, and non-Roman minorities. They looked at all these people as unworthy, only good enough to be slaves and servants. Sadly, many in America today, even some claiming to be Christians, believe and act the same way as long as they're white and rich and conservative or in power or whatever else, they're God's real chosen people. But the church of Jesus Christ has always borne witness to who God is by valuing people that the world does not. Stanley Hauerwas, the Christian ethicist, said that if in a hundred years Christians are known for anything, it's that there'll be people that don't kill their children and don't kill their elderly. That seems to be more true to me every day. As, as, as popular mainstream arguments for Nazi propaganda eugenics are coming mainstream. Well, if this person has a, a, a cognitive disability, oh, if this person is going to be born... Uh, with some sort of uh, uh, physical impairment. Let's just destroy them before they have a chance at life. If someone is old and forgetful and slow and can't consume or, or produce labor, then let's just send them off to be euthanized because they're in our way. But it reminds me of the, the story of St. Lawrence, the early Christian, who looked a Roman emperor in his face and said of the widows, the orphans, and the disabled people, these are the treasures of the church. These people that are God's image are the treasures of the church. Not gold and silver, but the poor. Not status or prestige, but the powerless. Friends, people are the treasure of the church. Because they're the treasure of God. The wisdom of this world preaches survival of the fittest. The wisdom of this world says people ought to be, ex- there's certain types of people that ought to be exterminated and who should not exist. But the wisdom of the gospel tells us that in Jesus, our weakness is made into strength. See, worldly pagan wisdom tells us that Jesus as only an optional God. And and Jewish wisdom tells us that we must be more religious and more uh, uh, strict to obtain God. But Paul tells us in verses 19-15 through how the Gospel turns all of these philosophies on their head. 
In verse 10, Paul tells us that just as Jesus is fully God and fully man, now in Jesus, we too have been filled up as sinful people with God's loving and purifying and forgiving presence. Jesus, our Creator and Redeemer, wants to share His rule and authority with the forgiven church forever. God Almighty, who created everything, desires to share His authority with sinners made into saints. We don't even want to share a meal with one another sometimes, and God wants to share His eternal glory with us. See, the wisdom of the world says only the best or the brightest or the richest or the most powerful get to be king or queen, but the Gospel says that all who believe in Jesus will be kings and queens of a new creation under the authority and rule of Jesus who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it keeps getting better, folks. Verse 11 says, In Jesus, we were spiritually circumcised. Now in ancient Israel, you know this, circumcision was a physical sign of God's covenant with His people. But now as Christians... We partake in a new kind of circumcision. Not one made with hands, but one made in the human soul. No longer is it just reserved for Jewish males. It is for everybody who comes to the Lord Jesus. It takes place in the heart of all people who believe and trust in Him and is demonstrated through the means of baptism. You were dead, and this is what you once were, and now you're buried with it, and yet with Christ, you're risen and are a new creation in Him. In fact, this is where Paul ties us even closer to Jesus than we might expect. Verse 12 says that we were buried with Christ, and we were raised with Him through faith in God's power. Folks, when Jesus found us, when He came into this world and found the people at Maranatha Baptist Church, they were part of the empty, spiritually dead wisdom of the world. That's what He found when He came to us. We thought we were full of life and goodness, but in reality we were dead in our sins. Our hearts were so hardened to God's true wisdom that loves all people, whether male or female, black or white, abled or disabled, left or right, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, young or old. All of us had an unpayable debt of sin and hypocrisy. We didn't even like ourselves most of the time. And yet God's holiness and creation, creation's dignity is shared and made new in us through Jesus. Through the actions of evil men and women in this world. Through their totally rejecting the light and life of this world. God nailed all our past, present, and future evil to the hands of His own perfect and loving and good Son. And by this we read in verses 14 that He has canceled hell and death forever. Not only that, but verse 15 tells us that He disarmed every ruler and authority and all their nasty little weapons. 
whether it was war or racism or abortion or misogyny or abuse or rape or starvation or any of the degrading sins that we willingly participate or foist upon each other, he dealt with all of those manners of human cruelty by Jesus going to the cross and taking all of that blackness into himself. Jesus on the cross strips sin and hell and Satan of all of its ultimate power. He took away the weapons of evil people and evil spirits by dying with our shame. Shamed. He shamed hell for good when He died with our shame. Jesus now, by rising from the grave, has triumphed over death over cancer, over coronavirus, over war, over bloodshed. And this alone, He alone is the power and wisdom and grace and philosophy of God. Accept no other substitute. Don't believe any other teaching that elevates anything above Jesus who He is, and what He has done freely, joyfully for you. No other promise in this world, no other news you will give your life, love, and liberty forever for. No other thing is greater than Jesus crucified, risen, and reigning for you. That's all the philosophy you'll ever need. It's philosophy made bread and cup here this morning. The world says you have to have this, you have to be in this tax bracket, you have to know these people, you have to show yourself worthy to come and eat with the important people. Jesus goes out and finds the most unimportant people He can find and says, come to dinner with me. And in this we remember who He is by participating in what He's done for us. Let's pray. Father, help us to put away any worldly wisdom or human tradition or elemental belief that does not ultimately lead us into the arms of Jesus. May we die to ourselves so that we may be raised to walk in the newness of His life forevermore. For it's in His name we now pray. Amen.